Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Gary Gensler, SEC chairman and someone of uncommon academic acuity, someone even the Republicans have said, boy, does this seem to be the right guy at the right time. Interviewed by the gentleman from Baltimore, David Rubenstein, (laughs) peer-to-peer interview. And the gentleman from Baltimore joins us now. Did you guys know each other? Did you know the families years ago? Uh, We grew up in the same part of Northwest Baltimore, but he's younger than me. And so I, I really didn't know him. It's, uh, it's interesting to see the, the path of Gary Gensler now to this point, David, of an SEC facing absolutely stunning innovation. It is just mind-boggling to me the challenges ahead. What did you learn about Gensler's approach to these innovative challenges? Gary Gensler, for those who don't know him, is a really, really smart person, an academic superstar at, at Penn but also a professor at, at MIT and also a very young partner at Goldman Sachs, previously head of the CFTC, now the SEC. The real challenge he has is, does he need to go to Congress to get additional authority to regulate things like cryptocurrencies, or can he do it with the existing authority? And I suspect he will use existing authorities because trying to get legislative uh, approval for some of the things he wants is going to take forever, and the markets may move well past what Congress already decides to do. So I think he's going to do things administratively and see what uh, the impact is. David, uh, Tom was framing innovation as a positive. Does Gary Gensler view it as largely a positive that you do have so much money going into crypto assets? Well, I think he thinks that innovation is, is good, but you have to make certain that the SEC's job is to make, make it clear to everybody what the facts are. They're not saying this is a good investment or this is a bad investment. They're saying, here's all the facts you should have before you make a decision. But sometimes now people are um, not being quite accurate in his view about what the facts are, or technology is pushing people to make certain investment decisions they might not otherwise make if they really knew all the facts. So that's what his concern is. How do you police this at a time when the technology is moving more quickly than often regulators can keep up? And frankly, when the brightest minds are attracted to the biggest paychecks seen more in Silicon Valley or Wall Street than in Washington, D.C.? That's a real uh, good question. There's no great answer for it, because the truth is you can make staggering sums on the outside, outwitting the regulators, and the regulators are playing catch up. So I think all you can really do is make a couple examples of people who've made some mistakes and hope that will trickle down to other people. But it's impossible to catch all of the innovations that are going on that probably the SEC isn't happy with. David, uh, an overarching question, and I say this with immense affection for, say, Ace Greenberg at Bear Stearns with the buy tickets in one pocket and the sell tickets in the other pocket. We're now to Robin Hood in all. Have we gone too far Have we gone too far in a search for depth of market and very narrow spreads that maybe benefit some but harm others? Too early to say. There's no doubt that younger people are coming into the market and trading, uh, day traders, hour traders, minute traders. And I don't know that they're fully informed about what they're doing. But also, there haven't been gigantic losses for many people yet because the markets have been very robust. Yes. Now, if if all of a sudden the markets go down, we'll see, as, as Warren Buffett likes to say, who's swimming without a bathing suit on. 
Well, tell me again about what Gensler's approach is just in the next 12 months, the to-do list, the immediacy for his uh, slow-motion agency. He's asking his staff to come up with ideas. In other words, the way he operates at the CFTC and at the SEC is he has a lot of smart staff people. He asks them to deal with the challenges he asks them to deal with and come back with recommendations. So he's waiting for recommendations. But I suspect at some point he will deal with uh, some of the challenges like cryptocurrency. Most recently, after my interview with him, he made a speech about private equity, indicating that he thought there were some issues that had to be dealt with with disclosure about private equity fees and so forth. And we'll see whether he regulates in that area. There's no doubt that he has a lot of authority. There's no doubt he's very smart and determined to do something, as he did at the CFCC. So I I suspect his tenure at the SEC will be one of activism. And there's no doubt that he's highly respected in the White House and highly respected in Congress. I have to say, David, Tom was talking about younger traders going into crypto assets. And I got a text from my 12-year-old son this morning saying, Mom, we should buy some Ethereum. It's going up fast and will continue. I do wonder, uh, David Rubenstein, in your tenure in the markets, in your decades, do you think that investing has gotten more or less treacherous for investors? Well, the example you just uh, gave is an example that reminds one of Joe Kennedy when he was getting his shoes shined. And uh, the, the person shining his shoes was talking about stock tips. That's when he realized too many people were in the market and he sold everything. When your 12-year-old is dealing with stock market uh, uh, gyrations, you have to wonder whether that's the top of the market. But there's no doubt that uh, the market is much more complicated today than it ever was. And technology is giving people certain advantages over other people to, uh, in, when they trade. And what the SEC is trying to do is to make certain that everybody has an equal playing field. It's not easy to do because the technology is changing hour by hour. So I think people have to really Mm. know what they're doing when they trade in the markets and recognize that it's a great time to make money recently. But at some point, markets do go down and then there are going to be some losses. And I suspect at that point, you'll see investigations. David, thank you so much. David Rubenstein with us, of course. And it is a peer-to-peer conversation. They've been wonderfully eclectic uh, this year. Jordan Rochester joins us here on G10, G5, maybe even G3 foreign exchange, of course, at Nomura. Uh, Jordan, let me get the dollar out of the way because Farrell's focused on the sterling because he's got to get on the Gulf Stream and come home. Jordan, I want to, on the dollar, there's a persistency here. Are we at key levels of dollar strength or do we need to go ever stronger to find a critical point? Well, the question is, do you think more can be priced into the Fed? Do you think U.S. inflation keeps rising? Do you think U.S. growth outperformance keeps going? Does the consumer, does the services, PMIs, the ISMs in the U.S. keep going up and stay at these high levels? And so far, all of those things keep happening, whilst the rest of the world, especially China, are having a slowdown, Tom. And that feeds through to Europe, and that leads to a European manufacturing slowdown, which we're seeing as well. Until those things change, I don't see a reason why the dollar should weaken. And so that's why we're still along the dollars here, expecting more of this appreciation to go. So, Jordan, help out a lot of people with this one. The Bank of England seems to be on track to hike before the Federal Reserve, yet sterling isn't doing much. In fact, you're short sterling. Can you make sense of that for our audience, Jordan? It depends who you're selling sterling against. So I'm doing against the dollar because I think it's a nice trade-off between the US and the UK, both kind of outperforming with inflation rising with both. Both have central banks looking to raise rates, but I think the Fed could have a bit more priced in than the Bank of England in the medium to long run uh, because the UK's got a few problems with Brexit ahead. 
when it comes to the euro, because the European Central Bank, they've had so, so pretty much 10 years of low interest rates, quantitative easing, low yields. They're unlikely to move as fast with the inflation that's going on right now. And so that's why the pound can strengthen against the euro, because that currency doesn't have a central bank willing to take action against this inflation. Where against the dollar, it's tit for tat. The US pricing for the two-year on the Fed is pretty much the same for the Bank of England. And until that changes, until there's more priced in for medium to long-term growth and higher interest rates in the UK, I don't see a reason why cable should materially go higher. Jordan, this is what I struggle with. I talked about this at the top of the ad, the growth inflation mix in the UK. If you ask people about it, TD Securities wrote about it in their outlook. There's a feeling that it's worse in the UK than the US. But I look at the year ahead calls for inflation, for growth, for unemployment. Jordan, they're very, very similar. What do you make of the growth inflation mix in either country? Well, in the US, you've got all of the excess savings. The UK also has those excess savings. So it is quite finely balanced. But if you look at the data for the UK, there are, there are problems with the supply chain that are on top of the global situation. So we're getting around 10 to 15 percent less ships arriving at UK ports because of the checks involved with Brexit. You're having all of the damage done from that sort of side. And then when it comes to the UK consumer, retail sales in the UK haven't gone up anywhere nothing like the US. So US retail sales have been much, much stronger than the pre-pandemic trend. UK, not so much. So until that dynamic changes, until we see reasons for the UK consumer to go out and shop a bargain, I don't think you're going to see that change, that narrative between the UK and the US. Jordan, this is a fascinating moment at a time when Steve Ratner, we were talking about his New York Times op-ed. Basically, he was saying nobody should be surprised that modern monetary theory essentially uh, ended up with inflation. However, is what you're saying that perhaps some of the stimulus in the United States actually gave consumers the spending power to keep the dollar strong, to basically keep the currency underpinned by economic momentum at a time when other nations, particularly the United Kingdom, is not seeing that? Well, to begin with, the plan was for FX markets, all, this, all that stimulus was debt induced. So lots of issuance from the US Treasury. The world had way more dollars. And we saw massive dollar weakness last year. Remember going to Q4, euro dollar really went higher. But that was on the idea from all the US economists that the Fed wouldn't consider raising rates aggressively. That's changing. And I think once you introduce rate hikes into the equation in the future pricing of the curve, that sort of balance of payments argument for dollar weakness just fell through because investors seek yield and the yields rising in the US much faster than Europe. So that's been part of that driver. And with monetary theory, if you get taxes, uh, sorry, if you get inflation, the way to do it is taxes. And because of Congress, because of this, uh, the sort of tight line with Manchin and Cinema, the idea of big tax rises in, in the US have really softened as well. So that's why we're seeing more being priced in for inflation, more being priced in for rate hikes. Jordan, what do you make of Terry Wiseman's argument that a perceived politicization of the Federal Reserve chair nominee will actually weaken the dollar, potentially lose credibility in the U.S. central bank? Um, the, the Fed's not going to lose credibility, but it's kind of been political all along. So the U.S. president has always had a choice of the Fed uh, chair. So that is that element. And you remember uh, President Trump used to tweet about uh, uh, Janet Yellen. So that, there's always been that element of politics involved. All central banks that we're talking about here, the Fed included, are independent. So it doesn't erode their credibility. They are trying to do the job right. Um, but yeah, there is an element of politics when it comes to the choice of Fed chair. And we can't ignore that it's chosen by a politician. Jordan, final question. What's more likely, Aston Villa avoids relegation or the Bank of England heights interest rates next month? 
They're both, they're both likely. Come on, that's really unfair. The villa's <laughs> gonna, the villa's gonna survive. <laughs> and you they're think we get a likely. hike next month too, Jordan? We definitely get a hike, uh, I think. It's, I mean, it's pretty much priced in, so that's not really a big call. But the question is, do we see more rate hikes than what's priced in for the rest of the year? And that's getting tough. It, it, that's why we're short sterling, because there's 115 basis points of rate hikes. Pretty much every quarter, you get a 25 basis point rate hike in that FX curve. That's kind of, that's kind of okay, but any, any, anything more? I doubt it. So that's why the risk-reward is the Bank of England might do less later on. Jordan, thank you, sir. As always, Jordan Rochester of Namora. Joining us now to kick off the equity conversation is Ben Laidler, global market strategist at eToro out of London. Ben, Santa came early this year. Is that your take? Uh, absolutely. Um, November, December, generally the strongest months of the year, the so-called sort of Santa rally. But, but here we are, sort of middle of November, we're up 10% from, uh, or nearly 10% from the sell-off in, in, in September. So I think this has been very front-loaded. Um, and, you know, we're up 25% for the year, and we never thought we were going to get here. We're sitting on our oh, year-end target already. So, you know, I, um, I think markets are very well supported. I see, you know, good upside for next year. I would just, uh, you know, caution that, um, you know, maybe we're not just going to keep rallying uh, uh, inexorably here. I mean, we, we've, right. we, I think we've already had the Santa rally and we're sitting on great gains and uh, we, um, I, I would take a little bit of consolidation. The modest Ben Laidler. Let me make clear, folks. No one on Global Wall Street called for three years of double-digit return like Ben Laidler. He's not surprised we're up 25%. Ben, what is a double-digit call for 2022 or do we finally get to a single-digit reality? I think we're going to come pretty close to double digits. And, and just to put that in perspective, I mean, that would be your fourth straight year. And I think you've only ever seen that once in the last sort of 50 or 60 years. So really, we're sort of heading into uncharted territory. But I, I think it's very, very doable. Um, and I think, you know, the two drivers here, I think earnings expectations are just, just still far too low. You know, in the US and globally, they're 7 8% for next year. I think you probably get double that when all is said and done. I think... Um, you know, GDP growth is, is nearly double uh, long-term averages. I think we're seeing the resilience of corporate margins. We have a lot of sectors, a lot of these reopening sectors that still have, um, you know, a long way to bounce back here. And um, and, and I, I think valuations are going to come down a bit, but I still think they're going to stay way higher than sort of long-term averages. I think, you know, bond yields are going to go up a bit, but there's still a fraction of, you know, previous um, previous recoveries. And, and you've still got this huge tech, tech sector, which um, just... Uh, you know, deserves to have very high valuations. Ben, you said take consolidation at a little bit around the edges, given the fact that we've already front-loaded this rally. Where are you taking consolidation right now? I, I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, tech, I guess, would be the obvious place. I mean, we're neutral tech. Tech's done sort of very well here. I mean, we have this sort of everything rally, which, um, you know, I take a lot of comfort from, right? Because I, I think, you know, it's not the sort of one-legged stool we had sort of last year. But, um, you know, I'd be sort of pulling back a little bit on tech. I, I think, the, I think the, the near-term story is this very strong growth reacceleration that, that we're having. I mean, you, you've seen it in the payrolls numbers. You saw it in the retail sales numbers yesterday. You've seen it in the ISM. I mean, you look at the, uh, the Fed now cast. GDP nowcast for the fourth quarter is nearly 9% growth. We had 2% last quarter. Uh, so I, I think, you know, you need to be sort of pulling back on, on sort of defensives, things that aren't exposed to that, and really focusing on the, uh, you know, the, the sort of cyclicals, the commodities, the industrials, the segments of the market, the reopeners that are really sensitive to this, this very strong 
growth recovery that we're seeing. And, and I would also just say the market's passed this huge stress test. I mean, we were all worried about inflation. We were all worried about the Fed tapering. We were all worried about interest rates. I and mean, we've just had tapering or announcement. We've had a big repricing of the Fed. And markets are, um, you know, markets are yawning. Ben, are you positioned for a repeat of Q1 this year? Is that it? Is that the playbook? I think so. Yes. I mean, I think uh, you know, it's small cap. It's uh, it, it's the reopening stocks. It's the sort of more cyclical sides of the economy. You know, who's got the most sensitivity to this growth rebound that we're seeing? And I, you know, I, I still don't think it's priced. I mean, just more broadly. I mean, the earnings numbers are just far, far too low. You know, even after what is it, the fourth quarter of you know very strong earnings beats we've just had. The optimism of Ben Laidler of eToro. Ben, thank you, sir. Right now, Sarah House joins us for senior economist at Wells Fargo, and we're going to rip up the script and get her in trouble. Sarah, is family formation a dominant changer within the American economy? So I think the demographics are absolutely important to the overall housing outlook. So we see millennials are just entering their prime home buying years. You couple it with the pandemic and it sets us up for strong demand to remain in train for years, especially just given the state of overall household balance sheets, you know, the excess savings right. that we've seen over the past year that, that helped a lot of millennials pay down debt, getting a better position for home buying. So it's yeah. absolutely important okay. to the housing outlook going forward. Nicely done. But if they can't afford the house because the down payment is more money than, than God. What do they do? How do you perceive house prices reacting that most of America can't find an entry point? So I think what we're seeing is, is that this that the onslaught of activity that we're seeing, okay, so maybe we didn't see a jump in starts this particular month, but you do have more homes under construction than at any time we've seen since 1974. You still have more permits coming down the pike. And so, yes, we're seeing construction activity constrained right right now by supply, but there is supply coming down the, the pipeline in, in subsequent years. And so I think that's going to help the affordability pictures for, for home buyers in, in the coming year. So, yes, the, the prices recently have gotten I think away from many households, but I do think that we'll see some some greater balance over over the next year or two that should help that household formation and help that home buying activity. On the flip side, Sarah, it's been really cheap to get a mortgage. It's been really cheap to borrow money for consumers, especially with longer term rate expectations as low as they are. You pointed to this and you think that this is an aberration, that this is wrong. The market is getting this incorrectly. Are you seeing a material increase in the uh, policy rate, the end policy? rate akin to what we heard from Bill Dudley of three to four percent? So that's not our base case right now. So we do think that the Fed will begin raising the Fed funds rate by the third quarter of next year. I think the fact that they get going a little earlier than they have sketched out, I think that'll help prevent that terminal rate perhaps reaching as, as high. So of course, the sooner the Fed gets started, that has the potential where they won't have to ultimately raise policy to such a restrictive stance. So right now in, in our forecast that goes out through 2023, we have about 100 basis points of tightening. Now, given what happens with inflation, how tight the labor market gets, that, that could obviously change. But for right now, um, given the mix of demand and what we see happening with that mix of spending going forward and, and the path of inflation, we think that uh, the Fed still doesn't have to be too aggressive in, in this environment, or at least they won't be too aggressive. Sarah, if they don't raise rates, though, until the beginning of 2023, as Morgan Stanley and TD Securities has been saying, is that a policy error? 
It's hard to say because, uh, you know, while we I think everyone's pretty familiar with the risks in terms of if inflation does stay at the current levels and we don't get the moderation that I think um, many people, many people still expect. But again, we have this uh, we have a, a great likelihood that you're going to see demand slow over next year, that the mix is going to shift more towards services. That's going to relieve a lot of the pressure that we're seeing in goods inflation, which has really been the, the aberration in this environment where goods inflation is at a 40 year high. Services inflation is still well within its its range of the past 30 years. And so I think that mix is is going to help. So the Fed, to to the extent that they get going too soon, they might overcool demand, which which is already set set to slow and and help alleviate some of these inflation pressures. Sarah, maybe an unfair question, but I'm going to take a chance. With the dynamics of this economy, how do you model when we flip to actual inflation-adjusted wage growth? Where is that? Where is that? Soon, quarters, years out. So it's probably going to be somewhere in the back half of, of 2022. So we have inflation staying pretty elevated through the first half of, of next year. So we actually have CPI hitting 7% in the first quarter. So as eye-popping as that 6% handle was, it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I think by the time you get to the second half of the year, again, inflation comes down. I think wage growth remains fairly strong, given that on net, we're going to see a, a tighter labor market than I think the Fed and many others expected. That's going to keep wage growth fairly strong and help those real earnings uh, turn positive again. Sarah, I want to end the conversation where we began it, talking about the housing market and the incredible growth in the supply of homes that will be coming online. And it raises a question about, I don't want to say bubbles, but this question of froth and whether perhaps this period has ignited not only supply uh, in the pipeline, but also just elevation, elevated uh, valuations that cannot be sustainable. Can we avoid a crash? Can we avoid a policy error? That is what a lot of people are worried about with the Fed. So I think in, in terms of the housing market, so the the price, the the rate of price increases we've seen over the past year, where they're up nearly 20%, it certainly is is concerning when we just look at it and sure uh, sheer price growth, you know, so it's it's surpassing the rate of growth that we saw in in the bubble years. But I think the 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 quality of buyers is very different when you look at the credit scores. And so I think that helps this picture. You mentioned the low rates that helps in terms of raising the, the actual prices of these homes, because it helps mitigate that the effect of that on, on payments. And so, um, you know, I think there's, there's definitely some, some concerns out there in the housing market, but I think as um, you know, we're, we're not at, at this point thinking that it's, it's going to end, end in the ugly way that we saw maybe in, in the, in the mid 2000s. Sarah, tremendous as always. Sarah House there of Wells Fargo. It could get worse before it gets better. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.